This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. I'm your host, captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. I'm happy to have you along for the ride today. I'd like to confess right out of the gates that I'm not a pilot. I didn't receive a degree in aeronautical engineering. The more I research, the more I'm learning. But truthfully, I'm just a guy that's taken an interest in plane accidents and the debates and details surrounding them. Today being our inaugural episode, I thought I'd give a brief explanation on what this podcast is. Each episode is going to contain an in-depth look at the conditions surrounding a specific plane accident. We're going to chat with guests about air travel culture, their relationship to flying, and maybe share some unique stories and get their take on the incident we shed light on. Today we have a couple guests. Um, The first guest I'd like to introduce is a musician, a comedian, an artist, former bandmate, all-around good man, Michael Rogilio. Hello. How are you today, Mr. Rogilio? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. Our uh, second guest is another musician, a Grammy Award-winning producer, an engineer, a generous and quality human being, and my friend, Sheldon Gomberg. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you. Well, today... Definitely not morning, by the way. Not even close. Nine o'clock at night. It is night. It is night. Uh, Today we'll be discussing the conditions and events surrounding Air France Flight 447 that crashed into the Atlantic Ocean early in the morning on June 1st, 2009, almost 10 years ago. But before we get into that, I thought we could have a little discussion about this podcast, the morality of this podcast, um, whether we are being entertained by living vicariously through someone else's misfortune, or if there's something that we can learn, and what is the interest that we have towards plane crashes and shark attacks? What, are, what, what about these events capture our interest as opposed to things like heart disease that kills vastly more people than plane crashes? Um, I would be interested, Mr. Regilio, what do you think about the matter? Why, why is it that plane crashes capture our attention? Uh, well, I hadn't thought about it till you started talking about it just now. And my first thought was maybe it's because they remind us that it can all be over in an instant, that no matter how well you plan your life, how healthy you are, how much you exercise in, in an instant uh, due to forces out of your control, it can all be over. 
So yeah, maybe we're fascinated with the with the violence of it, but at the same time, I feel like it's a human story about how you get on a plane and then in an instant you're not a person anymore. So I don't know, maybe in a weird way this podcast will help people appreciate the lives they have. That's that's that was my understanding as well. I feel like my hope is that we see plane crashes for what they are, which are opportunities for us to learn more to make flying in a plane a safer activity in the future. I hope that people that have died in a plane crash have been a sacrifice to future generations to have safer travel. We learn lessons from each plane crash. We teach pilots in flight school, this is why this plane crashed. Don't do this. If you're in a similar situation, pull out this way. And uh, I I think uh, also there's something about the plane crash that is different than other kinds of death that these people didn't sign up for that. You know, we all get on planes eventually. And I think we all kind of have that back in the back of our mind. The reason that I feel that I'm interested in it is that every time I get on a plane, I feel like I'm having a near death experience. I usually describe myself as agnostic, but whenever I'm on a plane, I develop an intense relationship with God. I start Mm. telling him that I have more tasks to perform and that (laughs) I hope we, uh, you know, reach the ground safely. I uh, consider myself a pretty stable person, but uh, every time I get on a plane, I feel like I have a more serious relationship with alcohol. I uh, (laughs) start ordering it and keep ordering it the entire flight. Well, that was one question I was going to ask each of you. It was some of your airport routine. Uh, I'll start with you, Sheldon. Uh, when you flew, what was, did you have a drink of choice? Did you have a routine? How did you feel about so flying? Ago, I don't really remember. I flying's no problem. I love flying. Yeah, you you were not a nervous I've Nelly. Never been nervous about flying. Huh? Must be nice. Must be nice. Yeah, no routine of any kind that you want to. Sheldon uh, spent a great many years as a touring professional musician, and uh, so he but probably I spent, has. I spent yeah. a lot of years as a kid, and. Yeah, flying with my parents, or, yeah. or just flying to get places. I, I've always enjoyed flying. So. Huh? Interesting. Yeah, I, I th- maybe that's another reason that I've had a fear of it. Is I don't think I flew until I was sixteen years old. Oh, so right. something I wasn't exposed to until later in life. So that's another purpose of this podcast. I feel like it's almost like anxiety exposure therapy. That I'm confronting this thing that I'm afraid of, and maybe if I just surround myself with it more, I'll be. I'll learn more about how planes actually work. I'll learn the improbability of a plane crash, and maybe my anxiety levels will be tamped down a little bit. When I was a kid, we took a flight somewhere, and there was some contest. I can't remember what the contest was at this point, but I won a bottle of champagne. I think I was like six years old or something. Nice. So. I guess maybe that. You didn't get to pound it as a six-year-old, No, huh? unfortunately. But they made him sip it slowly. <laughs> well, as any child should be forced to yeah. sip champagne. I have a couple statistics that might uh, help some of our listeners out there that might be nervous about flying. In 2017, we had the safest year ever in commercial flying. There was one fatal accident for every 16 million flights. Wow. Every day globally, there's 100,000 flights that occur. That number increases year after year. At any given moment, at any moment in any day, there's 5,000 flights in the sky above the United States. Uh, according to the FAA, they provide service to 43,000 flights and more than 2.6 million passengers in the U.S. each day. And the likelihood of being involved in a fatal airplane accident is very, very low. 
I like to give a ping pong analogy to friends that if I was in your kitchen and I had a mixing bowl and put a hundred ping pongs in that bowl and one little red dot on one ping pong ball and you had to pick these balls until you got the one with the dot, it would take quite a while. And if you went up to a kiddie pool and you filled it up with 10,000 ping pong bowl, balls and we repeated the same process, it would take you a long period of time until you selected that ball. Now, if you can imagine a lake that's been drained and there's 16 million ping pong balls in there, the odds of you going up to that lake with 16 million ping pong balls and selecting the one with a little red dot are the odds of you being in a fatal plane crash, which basically doesn't seem very likely. I don't know if that's as, as exciting of a reward as maybe winning the lottery. Or <laughs> you got the ping pong ball with a little red dot. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Which is actually exactly the um, uh, the original story, the lottery. Do you know that? No. You don't know that? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a short story about, and uh, you don't know it at first, but it's about a small town uh, and uh, uh, there's a lottery and you don't realize until the end that the lottery is whoever draws the, the winning lottery ticket is stoned to death by the town, that the town is the winner. <laughs> and the person who – no one knows this story? Okay. Well, this is, you know, a good place to share the story. All right. Um, uh, let's move on to Air France Flight 447. Air France Flight 447 was a plane that took off on May 31st at 2009. It was scheduled to fly from Rio de Janeiro to Paris, France. Estimated flight time of 10 and a half hours. The plane is an Airbus A330. It has a crew of 12 people. Three pilots, nine flight attendants, 216 passengers on board for a total of 228 people. Um, the pilots, there were three pilots. The first pilot is Captain Mark Dubois. He had 10,988 flying hours and was 58 years old. Uh, the first officer is David Robert. He is the pilot with the second most experience. His flying hours were 6,547 and he was a 37-year-old. And the final pilot, his name was Pierre Cedric Bonin. He had 2,936 flying hours. He was 32 years old, and he was known as a company baby. He had been trained by Air France, placed in Airbuses only after a few hundred flight hours. So the plane takes off at 7.29 p.m., scheduled to land in Paris the next day at 11 a.m., and for the first three and a half hours of the flight, it's pretty uneventful. Uh, there's a cockpit voice recorder you get from black boxes whenever there's a crash. And pilots were concerned about their privacy, so it runs on a self-erasing two-hour loop. So all we have is the last two hours of the flight, even though the flight was in the sky for three and a half hours. Um, At the beginning of this, Dubois mentions that he had only got one hour of sleep the previous night because he was touring Rio with a female companion that was a flight attendant. So he's... Uh, she was also an aspiring opera singer. They both had interests in uh, opera. Dubois was listening in the cockpit to opera through his headphones. And one moment, he even insisted that his co-pilot listen to the opera as well. And he thumbed through a magazine and read an article and discussed an article on tax havens. A flight attendant comes in the cockpit and asks that they turned down the AC in the cargo hold because she had some meat in her luggage and she was concerned about that, wanted to keep it cold. So it kind of sets the tone for the first three and a half hours of the flight where they were concerned about tax havens. They were concerned about uh, the temperature in the cargo hold. Is Obviously, the plane seems like it's flying pretty well. 
So because there's a long flight, uh, there's three pilots, and in the back of the cockpit is a little area for a one of the pilots to take a break or take a nap. Uh, David Robert, the guy with the second most experience, was scheduled for first rest, so he took a break, and uh, Dubois and Bonin are in the cockpit for the first three and a half hours of the flight. They notice some flashing lights that Dubois calls St. Elmo's Fire, and Dubois mentions that he has recognized it and has seen it before. They see some thunderstorms pop up on the radar ahead of the both of them, and Bonin remarks, I didn't think there would be much of a storm. And Dubois says, it's going to be turbulent when I go for my rest. So already the captain, the 58-year-old guy with 11,000 flight hours, the guy with the most experience, knows that there's trouble ahead, unfriendly skies. But he says, yeah, that's going to be when my rest is scheduled out. So probably he's still planning on going for that. When you fly from Brazil to France or when you fly from South America to Europe, you have to fly over the Atlantic Ocean and across the intertropical convergence zone or breeding ground, birthing ground for tropical storms, heavy weather. Uh, There's frequently bad weather there. Um, Bonin, our 32-year-old with the least amount of experience, shows signs that he's nervous. He seems fixated on climbing to a higher altitude. We'll never know exactly why, but one plausible explanation is that he saw the storms on the radar ahead and thinks, hey, if I can climb the plane to a slightly higher altitude, maybe we can fly over it. Uh, The plane at three and a half hours is cruising at 35,000, and the recommended maximum for the flight is 37,000 feet. Dubois, the captain, checks in with Brazilian Oceanic Control, known as Atlantico, and the controller instructs him to maintain an altitude of 35,000 feet. Bonin says, we won't delay and ask him to climb nonetheless. And Dubois says, yeah, but doesn't make the request to climb. It's kind of like he's not even really listening to Bonin. Bonin notices that the temperature outside is 12 degrees warmer than usual, so he comments that it's warm outside and again alludes to wanting to climb an altitude. We'd have a higher cruising altitude if it wasn't so warm out, he states. Bonin becomes anxious as they approach a cloud layer. Bonin says, it would have been good to climb, huh? Dubois says, if there's turbulence, meaning if there's significant turbulence, they're going to climb. There wasn't turbulence at the time. But yet again, this kind of gives us an insight that Bonin has climbing on the mind. The guy has expressed already several times. He's got climb mind. (laughs) He's got climb mind. The guy has shown us, said multiple times, he's nervous about the weather ahead and he desires to climb. Dubois, the captain, comments that they're entering the ETOPS, or death zone, which refers to a zone where diversionary airports are out of range and not accessible. ETOPS stands for Extended Range Twin Engine Operation Performance Standards. It's a set of rules, so if you're flying over the ocean, uh, you can get to a diversionary airport if you start to have an issue. Um, in the world of aviation, they have kind of an inside joke where they have an acronym for the ETOPS instead of what it actually stands for. They call it Engines Turn or Passengers Swim. Meaning if we have an issue, we're going to have to make a water landing because we can't get to an airport. Wow. Uh, so Dubois says, hey, we're about to enter this ETOPS zone, this area that we can't get to any emergency air- airports. And Bonin confirms this. Again, Bonin says that he thinks they're next to the cl- top of a cloud la- layer and suggests that they climb to 36,000 feet. Dubois says, we're going to wait a bit and see if this passes. So for a fourth time, the guy is saying, I'm going to climb. 
So the bad weather is still ahead, almost upon the plane, and it's 2.01 UTC, which is coordinated universal time, and this is when our captain says it's time for me to take my break. It's about three and a half hours into the flight. Bonin's seated in the right-hand seat. Robert returns from his break, and the captain gets out of the left seat, and Robert replaces him. Bonin and Robert see that they're encountering this bad weather ahead, and it's too late to completely go around the weather, so they decide they're going to maneuver the plane and kind of zigzag around the clouds. Bonin calls the flight attendant on the fire, on the intercom and says, Yes, Marilene, it's Pierre up front. Listen, in about two minutes, we ought to be in an area, and we'll start moving around a bit more than now. So he's basically saying... I mean, we're going to encounter bad turbulence. He encourages her to sit down. He says, I'll call you back when we get through it. Shouldn't be too long. Next thing that occurs is the cockpit undergoes some environmental changes. It gets hot. Bonin and Robert both remark on, hey, why is it so hot? Did the AC cut off? And they also notice a strange smell that floods the cockpit. Robert tells them it's ozone, which is air charged with electricity due to lightning in the area. So you have these kid that's already expressed hey there's weather ahead i want to climb he smells a weird smell he's hot he's uncomfortable like his senses are being challenged right now so four minutes after the captain takes the break they finally hit the bad weather uh on the cockpit recording there's the sound that experts have listened to their cop the cockpit recording and have said this sounds like ice hitting the windshield on the plane, there's something called pitot tubes. Pitot tubes measure the airspeed and assist the autopilot. These get clogged with ice when the plane enters this bad weather, and the autopilot just turns off. So the pilots have some work to do suddenly. Bonin's the young kid, says, I have the controls. Robert says, okay. It's 2.08 a.m. It's seven minutes after the captain left for his break. So to recap, the autopilot just shut off because there's sensors on, on the outside of the plane that froze up. Autopilot can't work if it doesn't have any information. Suddenly, the pilots have to earn their paycheck and fly this plane. But they don't fly the plane. They panic. When the autopilot shuts off, almost immediately, this 32-year-old, this young kid, grabs his side stick and pulls up and starts climbing the plane. He's already kind of alluded to he was going to do it the entire flight, and he immediately pulls the plane. But he pulls it at a very drastic rate. So is that up. what you would call climate change? Climbit change. Climb, climbed. Past tense. Yes. Probably going to have to edit that out. <laughs> we're we're going to leave that. We are going to leave that. So now's a good time to explain a little bit of uh, what a side stick is and the difference between a Boeing flight and an Airbus flight. On a Boeing flight, there's something kind of there's something called a yoke. It's kind of like a steering wheel. It's probably what you would conjure up in your mind if you. We're trying to develop a mental image of what a cockpit looks like. It's a big steering wheel that's in between your legs. And in a Boeing, there's a two seats for your, both your pilots. And if one pilot grabs the steering wheel and pulls it forward, forward or toward them to climb the plane, the pilot next door, his yoke goes to his chest as well. You can tell what's going on. If you push it down, the yoke moves away from you. So they're connected on a Boeing plane. In the Airbus, there's this thing called a side stick. It's kind of like a joystick, something you'd play video game with. And it's down at your side, and they're not connected at all. They're pretty small, so you, both pilots have to kind of communicate what they're doing. Otherwise, the other one doesn't know. If you pull back on your side stick, your co-pilot won't magically know what's happening. So uh, a lot of people have said that this possibly is a design flaw, but it might uh, be important to realize that they're flying this Airbus with these joysticks 
that aren't connected um, with what happens up ahead. So the autopilot's off. The plane's experiencing turbulence because they're flying through a storm. Sensors outside the plane are frozen. And the 32-year-old with the least amount of experience is suddenly flying the plane with a side stick, and he's making overcorrections. He's moving the plane to the left, to the right, and the entire time he's pulling back too, trying to pull the plane up. Because in his mind, I think he's thinking, hey, I'm going to get above the weather. But he's climbing at an altitude, he's climbing altitude at a rate of 7,000 feet per minute. Uh, when the pitot tubes clogged, the pilots aren't getting accurate information from their instruments, either the altitude says it dropped 400 feet when it didn't actually drop 400 feet so maybe this is another reason he could say hey i thought we had to climb i looked at the altitude and it dropped 400 feet robert's co-pilot hears the stall alert sound go off twice and he says go back down according to that we are going up according to all three we are going up so go back down what is a stall, you might ask? A stall occurs when the aircraft is going too slowly for the wings to give the aircraft sufficient lift. This happens if the plane climbs at too st- steep of an angle. If you climb at too steep of an angle, the plane loses its lift and speed and stops flying. When a plane stalls, it stops flying and starts falling out of the air like a rock. What are you supposed to do during a stall? Well, you have to push the nose of the plane down and you swoop like a bird coming out of a tree towards the ground, gain a bunch of speed, and suddenly you have speed again, and you can resume flying. Uh, Ten minutes have passed since our captain, Mark Dubois, went to take his nap. The plane is now in the hands of this 32-year-old that's panicking. Robert tries alerting the captain to wake him up, but Dubois, the captain, almost takes two minutes to come into the cockpit. Bonin has climbed the plane to 38,000 feet, but did it at such a steep angle that now the plane is officially stalling. 38,000 feet is the highest this plane is going to get. The plane starts falling out of the sky, losing altitude. Robert, the co-pilot, says, But we've got the engines. What's happening? Do you understand what is happening or not? They have the engines going full blast, but they're falling. They can't understand what's going on. So Bonin says, I don't have control of the airplane anymore now. I don't have control of the airplane at all. Robert says, Controls to the left, meaning I've given you all this time to fly the plane you just told me you don't know what's going on. I'm taking control of this damn plane. And he pushes the tip of the nose down of the plane to recover the plane from the stall. Unbeknownst to Robert, the pilot with the second most hours flying, Bonin, this panicking 32-year-old, is still pulling back on his side stick. Robert says he wants control of the plane. The plane starts recording these things called dual inputs, meaning both side sticks are asking the plane to do something, but they're asking for an opposite thing, and it says dual input, saying what's going on? Only one person's supposed to be flying the plane right now. The captain finally re-enters the cockpit 11 minutes after he went to take his break, and he's got to be like, what the hell is going on? I'm half asleep. I only got an hour of sleep last night. There's fucking alarms going off. He's, you know, living in a nightmare. And his exact words are, what the hell are you doing? Bonin says, we've lost control of the plane. Robert says, we've totally lost control of the plane. We don't understand at all. Now the plane is sinking. It's at 35,000 feet, has an angle of attack of 40 degrees. The engines are on full blast, but they're still sinking because they're stuck in the stall. The captain's half asleep. The guy with the second most hours can't figure out why the plane isn't responding to his attempts to push the nose down and recover from the stall. And the 32-year-old the entire time is panicking, pulling back on the side stick, causing the plane to stall, causing it to fall. So these three pilots are trying to figure out what's happening. The stall 
the irony of the situation is there is a stall alarm going off in the cockpit that sounds more than 70 times. And it's going stall, 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 stall. And you have a half-asleep captain, a panicking 32-year-old, and this the second guy, Robert, that's trying to push the nose of the plane down, but he can't figure out why it's not responding to his orders because he doesn't know that his co-pilot's pulling back on his side stick. So Robert asks the captain, what do you think about this? Which, what do we need to do? And the captain, half-asleep, says, I don't know. It's going down. I guess they're staring at the altitude meter. Um, it, no one's really seen, seems to process why the plane isn't responding to Robert's commands. Uh, after about a minute, Robert says under his breath four times, climb, climb, climb. And the young kid boning finally reveals the secret. But I've been at maximum nose up for a while. He finally reveals to these guys at 10,000 feet, the planes dropped oh from 38,000 feet to 10,000 feet. Wow. At 10,000 feet, he finally says, I've been at maximum nose up the whole time, basically saying, I've been pulling this joystick the entire time, causing the stall. That's why you keep on getting dual inputs and why the plane isn't responding. Good time to tell him. So uh, the captain finally figured out what the hell was going on and screams, no, 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 don't climb. But it's too late. They don't have enough room to dip the nose of the plane down and swoop down like a bird or go down like a roller coaster and come back up. It would um, take more than 10,000 feet is what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bonin, the young kid, says, fuck, we're going to crash. But what's happening? And the last sound on the cockpit recorder is the captain saying, degrees, pitch, altitude. And data recordings stop at 2.14 UTC. This means just 14 minutes elapses between the captain saying, hey, I'm going to take a break to the plane landing in the ocean. So it took three and a half minutes for that plane to go from 38,000 feet above the ocean to sea level. Wow. That's a pretty fast fall, Mm -hmm. wouldn't you say? Yes. And uh, that's the end of Air France Flight 447. Sure is. So we ask ourselves, what do we do with this info? And I would imagine a good thing to do is kind of examine what happened, what went wrong. What do you guys think? Well, I think Bonin is a murderer. And uh, no, he's not a murderer. But I mean, he panicked. I mean, it does seem like there's a design flaw. It does seem like there's a design flaw that there could be the dual inputs. That seems like a really bad idea. Yeah. And uh, I just, I can't get my head around why he wasn't communicating to them that he was pulling up on the stick the entire time. It sounds like there was a lot of dialogue going on and he had ample opportunity to say, hey, should I be doing this? I'm, I'm at maximum climb. I would imagine as being someone that's, you know, had anxious moments, I think he just got, you know, triggered by all these things. I think he saw the weather, already kind of let the cat out of the bag early on that, hey, I want to climb this plane. I'm worried about the weather, first off. And then he gets really hot all of a sudden. And then he smells a weird smell. I think he's just in over his head. To me, you know, we can all be Monday morning quarterbacks, but to me, the biggest thing is the captain, the guy with the most experience, didn't show up to work ready to work. He only got one hour of sleep. He's tired. And I think no matter what you do in life, you want to be a pilot, you want to be a plumber, you want to be a custodian, you want to be a teacher, you got to show up ready to do your job, get your job done. And also maybe call an audible. You know, if you notice, hey, I'm the captain, I have the most experience here, and it looks like this is the only rough area that the entire flight's going to go through, maybe I'll just put a little, you know, time out on my nap and stick around and, you know, earn my big bucks for this moment that I'm going to be needed. 
So I, I feel like Bonin is the easy guy to throw under the bus. You're right. Captain is definitely. Um, I, it's it's funny that uh, most aren't most operas tragedies. Possibly, I'm not. I don't I'm know. Not, I'm not, not an not, opera fan. I'm not into but, the world. Uh, of opera. I feel like he got his opera. Yeah, I he, think he, he got went, more than he yeah. uh, signed up for. Unfortunately, he didn't get his nap. He only got ten minutes of his nap. Oh, and then he got an eternity of napping. Oh, yeah, but but the nap is uh, not unusual. I mean, they're supposed to take the nap, correct? Yeah, that's a something that I've seen people talk about. Is that maybe he didn't? Maybe it would have been kind of almost like an insult. Maybe it would have been uh, for him to say, "You guys can't handle this." Oh, there's a rough area up here. You know what? I should. You know, you guys aren't qualified to deal with this. That maybe. Maybe it's uh, rude to say that he just simply wanted to get a nap and get some rest. Maybe he was thinking, oh, I can't step on my pilot's toes. I can't make them seem uh, like they're incapable of dealing with this situation. Maybe he also just doesn't anticipate this. He's probably fly through storms all the time. They're like, oh, it's on autopilot. Autopilot will just it'll be a little shaky. Yeah, I mean, that was his reaction. He said, it's going to be a little turbulent when I take my rest. Maybe that he looked at the situation as another day at the office. Um, here's a bizarre question, but do they ever actually release these black box recordings? Can you actually hear? You don't it, hear you the audio. The tra- you can only get the transcript. Right? Yeah, you can get you the can transcript. Only- I think, yeah, I, I would imagine that you wouldn't want to release the audio. Well, so. I mean, even like a leaked for, I just, I'm curious what they're, cause it sounded like they were remaining to some degree professional right to the end that they were giving, I mean, well, I just I, I find it interesting that there's not more panic, that there's not more cursing, that there's not more. There was cursing. There is, yeah. But they, yeah, they were trying to figure it out. That that was another point I was going to bring up. That it's easy for us to sit here. We have hours that we can sit here and talk about it and analyze it. This plane, basically, they had five minutes to figure out this problem. The captain went to take his nap at two o one. The plane was in the ocean at two fourteen, and. The first four minutes that he went to take his nap, they weren't even in the bad weather yet. Mm-hmm. So it just went. They flew into a cloud, froze up all the sensors on the outside of the plane. They got no information. Autopilot shuts off. First thing he does is pull the plane into a stall, and then it just drops out of the sky. So we have a lot of time that we can think about things and think about the design of the aircraft and blame people. But this, they went from being in a perfectly good plane and five minutes later being in the ocean. I have to say, though, I also, that um, I would imagine that the instruments would freeze up on every flight. Isn't it really cold up there? So uh, these, these would you say something the pitot tubes, tubes? The pitot yeah. tubes, like, that seems like a design flaw, too. Air France already knew that they had an issue with their pitot tubes and had many in a warehouse, and they were slowly integrating them into their fleet, that this was a design flaw. And unfortunately, this plane didn't get... It was scheduled, I think, to be revamped in August, and this was June. So I think it was uh, something that it was really highly unlikely that it was going to happen. And to be honest, if this, their pitot tubes froze up, so the autopilot cut off. All they had to do was keep the stick steady and just yeah. fly straight. And within a short period of time, they would have been on the other side of that weather and on their way to Paris. So I think it was a perfect storm of a inexperienced guy that didn't handle anxiety well, a captain that didn't show up prepared to go to work. Uh, they're flying this plane that, for one reason or another, didn't really seem to have a design that both 
co-pilots could instantaneously know what the other one was doing. A lot of it has to do with the fact that they just didn't have good communication in the cockpit under a stressful moment. They, um, they could have, you know, said, you're flying the plane. Okay, I'm, I'm taking it. When Robert says, I'm taking over the plane, Bonin should have been like, I'm no longer in control. This plane can't fly if it gets two different orders. So, so my, I'm curious, why, if Robert was there and ready to go, why did they hand it off to Bonin, who's less experienced? Maybe just to get some stuff under his belt. I, I think it just happened so quickly. No, I mean, they were sitting there basically monitoring screens because the autopilot was on. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden at 2.05, the autopilot clicks off. And he's got two minutes where he just climbs the plane. And then he says, oh, uh, the plane's not responding to me anymore because it's in a stall. And Robert's like, okay, I'm taking over. And the entire time they see the altitude meter going down and probably in Bonin's mind he forgot all his training it was just panicking saying we need to go up we need to go up not realizing that by pulling back on the side stick it was preventing them from pulling out of the thing that was sinking them which leads me to my question um so you said that they have to point the nose down in order to get enough speed up and that ten thousand feet was not enough how much how 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 far do you have to push the nose down and drop in order to get the speed up normally? Not More than 10,000 Absolutely feet. certain, but some of the articles and some of the research I did, I suggested that if they were around like 25,000 feet, that they could have had enough room to swoop down and gain speed and climb back at a moderate rate. What would this have done to the passengers? A lot of people, nobody knows for sure. I've heard multiple things. One guy has said that, Dropping out of the sky at 10,000 feet a minute would have caused an insane sound, a very loud sound that they would have had to realize what was happening. Other people have said it could have just been, you know, bad turbulence that they didn't know. I mean, obviously, their ears probably were clicking as they were descending, but it also happened so quickly, and it happened at 2.10 in the morning. So I imagine a lot of people were asleep. Couldn't stay to sleep very long like that, I don't think. And then you'd sleep forever again. Same, same notion. But uh, wow, <clears throat> I mean, uh, I don't. Uh, I, 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 I try every time I hear stories like this to put myself on that plane to to imagine what it would be like for me. And I've actually heard a few stories from people that have the the very famous one. And perhaps you'll cover it on the Plane Garage podcast. In fact, I recommend you do the Sully. Right? Yeah. The, the one that crashed into the Hudson River. Uh, I saw an interview with a guy who said that you don't, you don't get upset. You actually just, you just get sad when you realize the plane is going down. That it's not like you panic. You just go, oh, all these things I didn't get to do with my life. I wonder if that would be me or if I would just be screaming and crying and uh, blaming the other people in the row. <laughs> you did this! You ordered that Diet Coke! I knew the plane couldn't handle one more Diet Coke! I imagine that... I would like to uh, think that if I was in a similar position that I would just think about family and think about friends and be like, accept the situation and be like, I had a good life. I would really hate to think that my final moment on the planet would be this panic and fear. I hope I'd rise above the moment. Chances are that you'd panic and fear. Yeah, probably. Well, I panic and fear if I have like two coffees in a row. So, you know, falling out of the sky at a fast rate probably would be a little stronger than two coffees. Oh, that'll wake you up. In fact, I bet that uh, pilot was wide awake by the time they uh, hit the ocean. Wasn't so sleepy. 
Yeah, he's probably shocked. I, I imagine it probably felt like a dream to him. If you only slept an hour the night before, you're looking forward to going to take a nap, you fall asleep, they were ringing him, it took him like two minutes to wake up and come up, and he probably was just like half asleep before he knew what was going on. It was over. But these people did not lose their life for no reason at all. There was their sacrifice. What we learned from this episode, I'm sure, will be taught to every pilot in every flight school. I think people designing planes will see this as, oh, this is why this plane went down. What can we do to prevent this from happening in the future? So I like to think that all the people that have lost their lives on plane crashes have done it in greater service to the whole, that we all get to fly to Paris, we get to fly to London, we get to fly to Sydney, and we get to do it because of these kinds of incidents, that they are opportunities to learn, that we've learned, this is what can cause a plane crash, let's prevent that from happening in the future. Totally. I have one last question. Is Was the flight attendant that he was out the whole night before with uh, in Rio de Janeiro, was she on the plane too? Yes, I believe so. That is Air France Flight 447. Um, uh, The last thing I want to touch upon before we leave on a little lighter note was to ask you guys if you were uh, on a plane, if you're an aisle seat or a window seat person. Aisle, all the way, 100% of the time. What do you like about the aisle seat? I like to be able to get up when I want to get up. I don't want to have to interrupt anybody, tap them on the shoulder, excuse me, I want to get up again. I like getting up a bunch, to be honest with you, not even just use the bathroom. Just what if you fall asleep? Don't you dislike if you're like asleep and the people inside are going to wake you up? Uh, like I said, I just I, I like the control. I've looked out the window entire flights so many times that I feel like I know what the world looks like from an airplane. I don't the world's unimpressive to you. The world's very unimpressive to me. I've uh, been bored with it for a long time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, aisle seat all the time. And like I said, I do tend to, and judge me as you will, order hard alcoholic drinks the minute that plane takes off and the drink service begins, and I don't stop until it lands. Yeah. Sounds like you uh, might have a little anxiety about flying as well. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Shells Words. Bells, were you a, a aisle or window seat guy? I like the middle seat. Just the, get between two big people and you can't. No, I like. I used to. I always liked the uh, window seat. Yeah. And then, um, kind of near the end of my flying days, I uh, I switched over to the aisle, and now it's got to be aisle. You know. Yeah. I can't slip. I can't move over far enough for the. Yeah, I would say I'm a window seat person. The number one thing I find on planes is that I'm always hot. I always run hot. There's something about the cold plastic side of the window that I could just lean on. And also, I like to go to sleep if I can and not be woken up, especially for a long flight. I will say that one time I was on a plane, this is pre-9-11, when you could do these things, and the man sitting next to me uh, in the aisle, on, on the, uh, in my aisle, was so fat, he should have definitely had to buy two tickets. He should have had to have two seats. Like, it was ridiculous. He was spilling out all over into my seat. And about halfway through the flight, he pulled out his backpack and pulled out a bag of double-stuffed Oreos and a two-liter bottle of Coke. And I was so tempted to turn to him and say, don't get fatter! Come on, man! I thought knowing you, you'd just ask him if he could have some of those Oreos. Well, you know I love the Oreos. I'm a big fan. <laughs> big fan. Virgilio's known to have late-night runs to Vons for Oreos. Yeah. I, I was waiting for you to be like, you You were steering us all towards yeah, that. Yeah. And then you went and said, can I have some of those Oreos? And you guys bonded and had yeah. a great time. Yeah. 
and we became, no, I was just, yeah, I just, uh, I didn't think it was fair of this guy who was already taking up so much of my seat to <laughs> actually expand his girth in the middle of the flight. But nowadays you can't bring food or drink on a plane, so problem solved. Yep. Can never be too secure. Shells Bells, you have any uh, interesting uh, airport airplane stories you'd like to share? Would you like to fat shame anyone? No, I, yeah. I'll leave that that there's to one you. thing that's really popular to do in 2019. It's fat shaming. Uh, we'd, I remember one time we were at an airport. You can cut this out if this bores the shit out of you. But we were at an airport one time going to St. Louis, and, ah, um, my hometown. And uh, or maybe we were in St. Louis. Anyway, uh, we're on tour, and there are three of us, and we're sitting there talking, and all of a sudden we notice that it's kind of empty around us. <laughs> We talked right through the boarding and everything. Flight left without us. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Wow. Uh, This has nothing to do with flying, so to speak, but uh, a very uh, long time ago when I was in high school, uh, my friends and I had a tradition, which was every Christmas night we would go to the airport and it would be empty and we would skateboard the terminals at uh, Logan Airport, Boston, um, which was fun. Kids can't 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 do any of that stuff anymore. They've wrecked it. Okay. Yeah, you can't get. To can't that just go area. into an airport and skateboard. Maybe you should try and go through TSA sometime just with your skateboard and be like, "I don't have a flight, but I, when I was a child, I used to skateboard these parts." Yeah. What do you say? Let me hit the terminal one last time, buddy. Maybe I like, I like the old days of flying where you could just pull up to the pull up, have someone drop you off at the at the uh, curb, go running in. You didn't have to deal with all the TSA and everything. You could run up right as they were basically closing the doors to the plane and get on, you know, in the last yeah, couple of minutes. Yeah, kiss your loved one as they walk onto the through the gate. Yeah, it used to be fun. It's not fun, no. I, uh, I'm old enough to remember that when I flew to England in high school, I uh, you could only do this on international flights back then. Even then, domestic flights you couldn't. But on an international flight, I smoked a cigarette on a plane. Yeah, the good old days. The good old days when 16-year-olds could smoke a cigarette on a plane. What <laughs> happened, America? You Skate- used to be great. We would skateboard at night. We would smoke cigarettes on planes. Can still order hard alcohol the entire flight. I vouch for that. Now it's get in line or get hit by a billy club. Last time I was on a plane, I ordered a vodka cranberry, and uh, the flight attendant gave it to me. And then like 20 minutes later, I ordered a second one, and she just gave me two bottles of vodka. She was like, just here. I, I see where this is going. <laughs> I feel I like, like they're pretty – Thanks. I feel like they're pretty liberal with the uh, alcohol on planes. I feel like half the time I order alcohol on a plane, it's free. Someone's just like, here you go. One night, uh, I was flying from St. Louis to Los Angeles, and it was Valentine's Day, and it was like a 7 p.m. flight. And I uh, – 10 minutes into the flight, the pilot came on and was like, thanks for joining us for this romantic flight to Los Angeles from St. Louis. In honor of Valentine's Day, each uh, passenger will get three free alcoholic drinks. And they gave us three tickets. And the girl sitting next to me uh, said she was in AA and just gave me her ticket. So I got six drinks. Wow. One of the better flights I've ever had. Fly Southwest. Did you use them all? They treat you well. What? Did you use them all? I think I didn't. I think I used like three because drinking on a plane, you know, seems like it's you can multiply whatever you drink by two. Yeah. Did you get a little loopy and then turn to that girl and say, kiss me, you alcoholic? (laughs) No, she was probably disgusted by my alcohol usage. Well, guys, thanks for joining us. Thank you to Sheldon Gomberg and thank you to Michael Rogelio. Thanks for having us. Thank you to uh, producer Tess Andrade for helping us out. 
And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back uh, next week with another uh, episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. And I hope you guys all fly safe out there. I'll talk to you soon.